I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, I'm talking with Ricard Bandebo from VantageScore and Christian Widholm from Bloom Credit. VantageScore assigns consumers a credit score based on more inputs than traditional credit scores. And the goal is to help lenders make better lending decisions and to give consumers better access to credit. Bloom Credit has modernized the infrastructure for any business that's using or generating credit data. So platforms, fintechs, neobanks, lenders, subscription services, and others. The goal there at Bloom Credit is to make it easy to integrate with the major credit bureaus to access their data and also to make it easy to report accurate data to those credit bureaus. So today, Ricard, Christian, and I are talking about three things, mainly economic and social opportunity. So how many thin file, no file, and subprime consumers are there in the USA? Why are there so many? And how does it impact them to have that status? Second, credit building products. We're seeing more companies offering products that are designed to help consumers build their credit. What's driving that trend and what's in it for companies? And finally, credit data accuracy. How much of a problem is inaccurate credit data and how can the system be improved? So stay tuned for our conversation about better data, better credit scores, and better opportunities. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Ricard and Christian, welcome to Commerce Code. Thanks so much for joining us. And where are you uh, joining us from? I am joining us from just outside New York City. Great. Ricard and Christian, where are you? I am uh, similar. I'm outside New York City in Connecticut. Great. Well, I got to say, I'm not just outside Toronto. I'm a long way outside Toronto, but I am working this week. And I'm going to just declare that I have a better view than you guys without even knowing what your view is. Uh, But we're totally excited to have you on this episode of Commerce Code and to kind of dive in on some really interesting stuff, I think, relating to, you know, credit, credit scoring, obviously, but also just quality of credit files and kind of impact on on people and on the marketplace. And so um, I want to just start And Ricard, maybe I'll tip this in your direction, and then we'll pick up Christian's perspective on these things too, with kind of a a discussion of something that has come up from time to time on on Commerce Code before, which is the the universe of consumers, and we'll focus on the US, that have what we'll consider sort of thin file, no file, subprime, and then some of the the issues related to that. So let me just maybe start, Ricard, with how do you, you guys define thin file, no file, and or subprime? So if thin file may be defined differently by different credit bureaus and at different scores, but the way that we look at thin files is that it is consumers that have a credit file, but um, have at the most two open or closed trades. When we then think about sort of other people that fall into different categories of how much information is stored on them, there's also another category called no trades, 
which means that these are people that are on file, i.e. They, they have a file at at least one of the credit bureaus, but they don't have any of the traditional trade line there. And then there are those that are classified as no hits. And those are people that don't have a file at any of the bureaus. So they, as far as the bureaus are concerned, they, they don't exist because there's no information being provided on them. Now, when it comes to subprime, with different types of credit scores, there are different bands. Um, for Vantage score, subprime is sort of the, the lower band, using that vernacular, it's between 300 and 600 points for the Vantage score. Near prime is what we call 600 to 660. Prime is 661 to 780. And then we have super prime, which is 781 to 850. So you talk about no trades and no hits within this. And for listeners who aren't in your part of the digital commerce world, or the commercial world, uh, am I right to say that what's being collected traditionally is a pretty narrow, is maybe a surprisingly narrow band of information and that there's a fair bit of other information that could be collected and that, you know, Vantage Score sort of is starting to look at that stuff, collect it, assess it, figure out whether it's valuable and all that, right? Yes. You know, the information that's being reported, you know, has changed over time and there's definitely more new types of information that's appearing. And there's some older pieces of information that isn't appearing as regularly as it used to as well. So it, it is a changing universe, which is why it's important that, you know, models try to take advantage of as much information as possible to get the most accurate picture of a consumer. And so one of the things, just to take a specific example, that has conventionally maybe not been collected or at least not assessed has been rent payments. And I, I know the Vantage Score has been looking at that a little bit more now. So talk to me a little bit about that and how that how that changes things in your view is to be able to look at people's consistency of paying rent. Yes. So actually taking a little bit of a step back here. So traditional conventional scoring models did not look at all types of trades. And so for instance, when we began analyzing for our most more recent models, Vantage Score 3 and Vantage Score 4, like what happens if you included rental payments or utilities payments, we actually found that they were very, very predictive, right? And so when we have had sort of two core goals, you know, one is very much obviously product, produce the most accurate models out there, but the second one is to be as inclusive as possible, to be able to score as many people. And when we looked at, you know, increasing coverage, there were two ways that we did that. One, which is to relook at the constraints that have been used by conventional models to see if there's ways that we can find a better way of creating those constraints so we can score more people, but still score them accurately. And the second way, touching on what you just mentioned, which is rental payments, but also utility payments and other types of data, is to add additional data sources so that we can get a better view of a consumer's you know, ability to make payments on important bills, like obviously like rent and utilities. You know, Christian, you've said this to me before in conversations that we've had. It's a big, it's a big group of people in the USA that you know have kind of a limited file and therefore limited access to credit. What was it? What was the number again? Yeah, it's very sizable. You know, there's 106 million consumers. It's estimated that don't have access to mainstream credit rates in the United States. And the reason they don't have access to mainstream credit rates is because they're either thin file, no file, or subprime. And obviously, that's a huge amount of, of the total population for the country. And it is typically not a segment that traditional banks go after. You know, Ricard was giving the, the segments of, of you know, near prime, prime, subprime, and, 
And most of, of the banks have traditionally focused on prime plus consumers, predominantly. Obviously, there's exceptions to that rule. So there's a there's a significant number of, of folks in the United States that basically are what I either call underbanked or don't have access to mainstream credit rates or products. Just to expand on that a little bit or kind of t- tap into it. I think to me, if you're not in the, if you're not sort of in this space and really doing it professionally or thinking about it all that much, the casual way of thinking about those folks is, you know, they don't have much money or they're just, they're not, you know, it's, you kind of think about them. And I guess what I would say is it feels the more I understand this, like these people are just living their lives and not necessarily anything wrong. They're not interacting with institutions that are reporting stuff. And that's the deal, right? Like we have a system that collects certain kinds of information. It sees what it sees and it doesn't see some other stuff, right? And this is coming around a little bit just to to get people to be familiar with what Bloom does. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world. So then you're, you put yourself in the shoes of the institution, you know, that's dealing with folks. It's not the easiest thing in the world to collect the information and to accurately report it. So we've talked about looking at whether people were making their rent payments on time, you know, as if that information sort of magically makes its way into the hands of the credit bureaus. Of course, it doesn't, right? And so um, if I understand correctly from our conversations before, you know, Bloom Credit is sort of in the business of making it easier to accurately report this information for the entities, right? And that that has the effect of, creating more opportunity and more, you know, record keeping for, uh, for a bigger number of Americans. Yeah, correct. Look, I mean, there's, there's traditional credit data and there's kind of more non-traditional credit data. And I think that, that what Ricard was saying on uh, rental payments being an interesting predictor and using that is starting to take in more robust pieces of data that are out there that could actually better serve and score a larger population of the United States. I mean, there are segments in the United States of people that, that really predominantly only transact with cash still. You know, those folks are, aren't really ever going to show up on, under a traditional type of credit data because they're not using those products. There's a, a significant amount of opportunity that's out there to continue to expand and bring in different types of data sources to have a clearer view or understanding of these consumers. And, and absolutely, on, on our side, our goal, you know, we're a B2B credit data infrastructure company, but we have a more of a consumer-minded mission, and it's to expand access to affordable credit. And we think that one of the ways that we help do that is by making it as easy as possible for entities to send credit data, whether traditional or non-traditional, to the bureaus in order to enhance scoring and to provide more clear, accurate pictures of of creditworthiness of these consumers so that they can actually get access to mainstream credit products and mainstream credit rates. The impact is two-sided. You know, for people who think about this at the global level, you know, there's a whole conversation about microfinance and, and other kinds of things to try and open up a, you know, a huge multi-billion person global market of folks who, who don't have um, access to credit or just kind of conventional commercial activity. And then so in the United States, if we just narrow our focus to the U.S., there's obviously a, a very meaningful commercial opportunity. You kind of alluded to the traditional banks going for, you said, prime and prime plus, and, and that there is a sizable opportunity there. Again, you have, you and I've talked about a little bit before, and, and maybe Ricard has thoughts on this stuff too. Who do you see sort of being willing to go after the opportunity of saying, hey, you know, there's an untapped market of people who haven't been seen very much before, or at least about whom we don't have that much data. And we're going to try and open up that market as a commercial opportunity. And by the way, it'll be good for them too. Who do you see doing that now? Typically, it's like a cycle or a trend that you that you kind of see in these these types of products where typically it's smaller companies, fintechs, companies coming in that are trying to solve specific problems for certain segments of the population. And they they ultimately start to take hold and are able to have traction with these products, gain some market share, start to prove out that, hey, these actually folks can, can benefit from these types of credit builder products in order to improve their credit. 
But then ultimately what typically happens is that you start to see larger players start to take notice and realize that this is a, a big market with an interesting opportunity. Like if you're a bank or a, or a larger brand, you don't necessarily want to just ignore this giant 100 million plus person segment of the United States that doesn't have access to stuff. You want to be able to start engaging them and to you know participate in their credit growth and graduation into you know higher levels of credit worthiness. So you can actually then start to actually offer them other types of products and services as soon as they're ready. So I think that it's a typical course of usually it's a smaller kind of niche focused segment where companies are offering products and services. Those start to grow. And then right now what we're seeing is larger name brands and financial services, as well as non-financial services companies that are actually really interested in the segment and are starting to invest. Interesting. Ricard, how do you guys see it over at VantageScore? We see that there is very large demand out there by all types of lenders for being able to be more inclusive. That's something that's very consistent from local credit unions all the way back up to your large credit card issuers to you know your large banks. And that's what kind of we've focused on it quite significantly. So as Christian was talking to before, with conventional models, there are tens of millions of consumers that are not scored. What we did with our last two, latest two models, Monoscore 4 and Monoscore 3, was to try to figure out how can we add more of those to be scored. So with Vantage Score, we actually typically then score about 30 million of that missing group now. But to be also clear, of that 30 plus million that we score, about 10 million of them are over 620, which will make them eligible for a lot of types of conventional loans, credit cards, et cetera. It's a stepping stone, right? There's many different parts you need to do, but 10 million is, is a big chunk of that population that we can help. Now, as we look at going forward, we see that adding more types of data can really help because as you were both alluding to earlier, there's this huge population, tens of millions of US consumers, who is not because they have any bad information on them, but it's simply that there isn't enough information on, about them stored on these files for them to be able to get a score that's good enough for them to be able to obviously then qualify for certain the types of products that they're looking for. We, we actually did some analysis on the rental data and utilities data, and we found it can actually be very, very significant in terms of its impact on being able to improve people's scores. So for instance, just adding one account, so it could be utility payment or rental payment, could improve somebody, for instance, who doesn't have any trades on their, on their account, can improve their score by over 100 points. If they add up to two or three accounts, it could add up to over 140, maybe I think over 150 points to their credit score. So being able to add this information can have obviously a very, very big impact on the types of products that people can access, but also how much they pay for those products. Such an, I'm sitting here thinking through this as you're, as you're talking, and I think I'm wondering if what the reasons are historically why these things haven't come in or been looked at. And of course, you know, you can imagine you've got several people living in a household. And so the utility bills are in maybe all in one person's name or in a variety of different people's names, et cetera. And so there's kind of, there's a little bit of randomness to that information that maybe wouldn't be as present with like credit cards. Although maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, is, is that kind of one of the reasons why this is, this is variable or is that just, you know, why haven't we done this before? The things that tend to be most persistent on a credit file are the things that are mandated to be there so that it's a legal requirement for those to be reported. And rental payments are not mandated. So that means that because it's not mandated, you know, a lot of the companies that handle those rental payments don't necessarily report it 
to credit bureaus, and hence it doesn't appear on the file. Whereas other types of payments and delinquencies are reported because they're required to be reported. Agree with with what Ricard said. I think in, in addition to that, like I said earlier, this segment typically hasn't been a really a target customer base or t- customer segment of most of the traditional banks and financial uh, institutions that are out there. But also, there there really hasn't been cost effective ways to really do this because no one was really focusing on building out origination systems that could actually do these types of loan products and keep it profitable and. I think more and more you've got innovations in the market coming from folks that kind of started smaller, really kind of proving out the concept and, and building platforms that basically help facilitate this into something that can actually be scalable. It's not like why it hasn't been done, I think, because mostly because it hadn't previously been a focus, but a lot of that I think was because there really wasn't a real easy way to facilitate it. And I think that we're in that natural progression where the capabilities are there, the data is there, and now it's basically off to the races to provide for this segment of the population. So you and I mean, to some extent, this we, we, we figured out or I figured out that we really wanted to do this podcast when you and I got talking about credit building products. And so I want to kind of turn to that. You know, there's been a, a movement and I'll have Christian, I'll, I'll turn to you first move to talk about the way you see it. And, and Ricard, be interested to get your angle as well. But we see organizations that say, hey, there's an opportunity here. But in particular, it seems like some some folks saying we can kind of work with consumers or create products that help consumers to build their credit and that that becomes then sort of symbiotic. Right. So it's not just if I understand this correctly uh, as an organization saying, hey, we think there's an opportunity to extend credit or to do business with ThinFile or or whatever, you know, kind of consumers. But rather, hey, why don't we work with people and see how we can kind of change their their fortunes or their lives by helping them with this stuff. So so I'd love to hear you talk about that from your angle, Christian. I think that just look at the progression of just, you know, technology in general. And you've got all of these these consumers that now have the ability to understand what their credit score is. I want to say that right now, because of edu- for education purposes, that consumers have probably never been so empowered to understand what their credit score is, right? Or what's on their credit report. There's so many different services that are, that are out there. There's so many different financial institutions that include it like in their, their my account and everything else that consumers have a better understanding of what their, their credit score or credit history is if they have it at all. And I think that you see opportunities for these lenders as well as brands to really engage these consumers and to really start offering them products to actually, like I mentioned before, help them get into a state of credit stability or or soundness where they then can actually graduate to other products and services. So I look at it really more as a, as long-term relationship building. I mean, you're talking about over a hundred million people. And just to be clear, because Ricardo was saying tens of millions, he's, he's, he's right. I agree with him on the tens of millions for, for thin file, no file. You know, the, the total in the United States that I was mentioning is thin file, no file and subprime is about 106 million when you actually add all those folks up. But even the folks that are subprime that have a negative credit history, have the ability to improve their credit with help and and with you know, with discipline, and many of these brands and financial institutions want to be there when they're ready. Having that relationship will actually lead to more opportunities for you to be able to engage with them when they're ready for those credit products, those core credit products, which predominantly is where you know a lot of financial institutions and brands would earn more of their money on those types of credit products. So I look at it more as. Hey, we're the consumer is empowered. The technology is there to actually deliver these products and services. And it's really about a relationship build so that you can you can engage these folks when the time is right. Ricard, you got an angle on that? 
I think that credit bill of products, obviously, they're predominantly there to help people improve their credit scores. And I think that's a good thing. I think many of them enable people to just have visibility. Like some of them are rent reporting services, other them, others are sort of secured credit cards or sort of loans that people can take to demonstrate they have an ability to, to do those things. So anything that can help people really demonstrate how they can be financially responsible and that that can be visible on the credit file, I think those are good things. I want to just put some meat on the bone for people who have no familiarity with it or, you know, listeners of Commerce Code probably aren't themselves using these products. And if they're not working in this space, then they maybe never, never heard of it. So I have an hourly job. I'm in a two income household. Maybe we both have hourly jobs. We don't particularly have, you know, a credit profile. And so what is the thing that I get offered and what does it help me do? And just an example, I know there's more than one, but if you want to just grab, pick one, I don't know, Christian, of, of what do these things look like and how do they work? You know, there, there's obviously the things that, that Ricard's been talking about, which is rent reporting, utility reporting, that type of stuff obviously is highly beneficial and predictive for scoring. But for folks that actually, you know, either don't have credit or have bad credit that actually want to engage with credit building products, typically where they start is going to be with card products. And there's different card products that they can do. There can be unsecured card products with a with a fairly low limit to start. And then you start to progress as that limit higher as you start to see positive uh, repayment history from those consumers until they get to that state where they can start adding other types of credit products and really kind of create, again, a more robust kind of credit profile for more mainstream products. And then there's also secured cards, which is another step where it's secured by some dollar amount that's provided by the consumer in cash and will allow them to still access a credit line that's secured, but basically helps them get their feet in the water so they can actually start, you know, building positive repayment history in that regard as well. Those are probably the two primary that we see. There's also certain types of loans that folks will get that are personal loans that will be, you know, smaller dollar amount uh, that aren't revolving that ultimately will solve the same, uh, the same problem. Yeah. My son is in college and he we just been lazy about this stuff. And he came to me and said, hey, you know, should I get my own credit card and whatever? I said, yeah, sure. How hard can it be? And maybe I was remembering a, a day of uh, perhaps different behavior from the credit card companies, but I thought it would be a piece of cake because I think it was for me. But I don't know. This is a very, very long time ago. Anyway, he ended up uh, after all was said and done, you know, writing a check to I'm pretty sure it was Discover has sort of a student credit card thing. And then, you know, some months later got a check back in the mail, right? Like it was it was a secured product. So that's kind of the way that that worked there. And so it sounds like um, from what you're saying that, you know, that's one thing what you've described is, is more in the nature of because I can't imagine that too many people, I think it was 500 bucks, I could be wrong, are going to write a check for that, right? Like if they're, if they're in that position, it's not the greatest thing to have to do, but that there are a variety of ways to do it and to build your, your credit and helps you move up the credit ladder. Yeah, there's different products for different types of use cases and needs of those consumers. It depends, but the one that like, like the example you gave on your, on your son is a good one. So where does BNPL fit into all this stuff? Well, I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit. So currently in the United States, it isn't mandatory for BNPL providers to report um, this information to the bureaus. So there isn't a lot of BNPL information that's coming through. And also there is, I think, a movement from the regulators and the BNPL providers and the bureaus to try to find a way to consistently report this data to the bureaus. Now, what's important to remember is that, you know, hopefully this will happen soon. And we're working with some of the BNPL providers to do some research in this area. You know, we have a hypothesis that BNPL data could be valuable for not just adding more predictive lift to, you know, these scoring models, but also, again, to help score more people because BNPL may be one of the first 
types of financial products that consumers interact with and can potentially build some credit history with. But the key thing, though, is it's very different in kind from other types of loans. So it can't just be sort of added and work with traditional credit scores. It will need to be thoroughly analyzed before it can sort of be part of the actual credit scores. Yeah. Was, is there any history of, I suppose, other than the, the retailers themselves, but I mean, uh, of analyzing, reporting, or otherwise using a, a layaway kind of payment information? Because that, that, in principle, is the same idea. I'm not so familiar with that. I mean, they have started, you know, mandating BNPL reporting in the United Kingdom. And I think there might be other countries in Europe that either are looking at that or have done so. I think one of the things that, you know, we're keen on in the U.S. is to learn from other implementations. And I think one of the challenges is if you only report the negative BNPL file information, then you won't have any benefit for who people who are doing well at paying down their BNPL loans. So I think one of the key things that we are trying to push for is that, you know, that the positive reporting is also included ultimately. Well, absolutely. And if you want to fill out files for more people, I mean, it stands to reason that BNPL would, would, would be reaching a lot of folks who maybe don't have much of a file and that, you know, that it could be good, but you're right. Like, it's not going to do you any good if it's just the negative stuff. You know, so I wanted to I would jump to a couple, you know, a couple of the last topics here. One is that consumer education. And maybe, Ricardo, I'll start with you. But, you know, a lot of this has to do with consumer understanding and education about how the, you know, kind of the, the actions that they can take or that they should take or not take, you know, to that'll impact these things. But I wonder, you know, what's taking place now, maybe that wasn't happening before? Is Are things getting better in terms of consumer awareness on this stuff? You know, I think it wasn't that long ago when people didn't have easy access to their credit scores. You know, we were a big proponent and, you know, we, we've obviously, you know, the most used score for consumer education and one of the kind of pioneers. So we, we've seen this as a really good opportunity. And what we're seeing is that as people have become more familiar with credit scores, their, their credit files, begin also then trying to understand, well, what can we do about this? And they're beginning to learn about credit health and, you know, what they can do to improve it. And that has also, yes, we, we talked about credit builder products and other things as well. But even before that, you know, we've seen people changing their financial habits, not everyone, but, you know, large amounts of consumers, because they now have an understanding of what financial habits will have positive and negative effects on their credit scores. So in general, we think it's been very positive, but I'm sure Christian probably has more to add. And I agree with everything Ricard said. Vantage score, without question, we see it as, as the most used in terms of consumer education or being available to consumers to, to further education and awareness of what their credit score is. I think that's a very positive thing because the more that you know and the more that you're aware, the more that you're likely, if you, know, if it's, if you so choose, to do something about it, to be able to improve your credit score and to start actually taking actions with your with your finances and the way that you repay things. And credit reporting is the carrot and the stick. The carrot is if you pay your bills, you pay them on time, you, you're taking out credit products, then your credit score and your credit profile should improve. And the stick is if you don't pay it, then your credit score, your credit profile is going to be impacted negatively. And I think that the more that there's awareness and there's more types of of places that you can access your score, so there's almost no excuse for anybody not to be able to get their score. They can either get it from like a free credit report, they can get it from Credit Karma, they can get it from usually almost any bank or financial institution from like a My Account section. There's so many different products and services out there that, that provide this that it really is empowering that consumer. And, and I agree, I don't think the consumer's ever been 
more empowered to understand what's going on from a credit perspective than they are today. It used to be a black box almost, right? Where people didn't know, what am I? I have no idea how I'm perceived. All I know is I put an application in at my local bank for a product and I got denied. And then I got this legally worded adverse action notice that gave me some some reasons, but I don't really understand them. And now there's just so much more prescriptive information out there for consumers that I, I think it's it's in very, very helpful. And I think that we're just kind of scratching the surface on what we can do for consumers with that information. So sticking with the consumer experience, and I want to stick with you, Christian, on what you guys do specifically, because I think it's super interesting, but I will just conjecture that the typical person's experience of credit scores, you know, the typical day, they don't think of them. Uh, but when they do, it's kind of one of two things, right? It's, oh, my score is or isn't this, or I'm not really sure what it is, or I got denied for a product, whatever. So there's a substance of it. And then the other thing, though, is, oh, crap, there's something on there on my credit report that's wrong, or there must be, or I think there is, or I was able to confirm that there was, or whatever. That's the other piece. And then needless to say, we're humans and it's life. And so people will be critical and say, oh, that shouldn't have happened, et cetera. There's always another side of the story. It usually goes something like this. Life is complicated. The explanation for why this gets screwed up is quite understandable if you know how it gets screwed up. Uh, that's my analysis of the whole thing, which is not exactly sophisticated, but that's a lead into saying there are errors, right, in the credit reports and therefore the analysis about any given consumer and always right. There's also understandable reasons why those errors happen, and you guys are pretty much in the business of trying to make it better. So I'd love to get your angle, I guess, on what causes credit data inaccuracies just at the get-go? How does it impact consumers and you know, and that stuff? And then we can kind of go from there. Yeah, look, I think first I'd say like largely the, the the bureaus do a really good job in terms of acting as a filter to weed out bad data when it's coming in and then holding some of the people that send them the data that don't do a good job of sending it to them accountable and they ultimately will shut them off. But the reality is that you know, I think each of the bureaus and Ricard can fact check this. I, I believe they each have over a trillion trade lines that they have within their repositories they're reporting. That sheer number is just massive, right? When you look at it. So, you know, at times when a consumer is putting in their information to a credit application, they might accidentally misspell or mis mistype something and they might have their name wrong. They might have their social security wrong. They might have put the wrong year for their birth date. They're, they're benign errors, but they still can lead to like matching issues and sometimes maybe ID verification during a, like a loan origination process. But there's 12 million consumers, and this is, this is I think, widely kind of accepted, uh, around 12 million consumers in the United States that the errors that they have in their credit reports are material enough. They're not one of those benign kind of misspelling errors, but they're material enough that they're actually negatively impacting their credit score and their credit history. And ultimately, that leads to them potentially getting outright denied for credit or at you know best case, not actually properly priced for credit risk. Right, meaning that they're paying more in interest because they got priced higher because of something that not to their fault was wrong on their their credit report. And there's various reasons that that type of stuff happens. A lot of it you see from the systems of record from the lenders, the loan management systems and whatnot, potentially have maybe a small systemic error. But like you know, when you times that by a lot, a lot of people, it can become bigger. And there can just be things on there that are inaccurate. Sometimes uh, it could be that a trade line was misapplied to them. It could show they have two mortgages when they only have one. 
Sometimes it could be that they're showing that they're delinquent for something when they're not, right? It's a loan that's paid off with a $0 balance and they're, showed, they're showing as delinquent. So there, there are instances of, of this where, where folks are, are negatively impacted. And again, the bureaus, the bureaus do a good job of, of weeding most of it out, but the sheer volume is hard to stop everything. So you know, what we focus on is we have 450 validations and data quality checks that we do for all of our clients when we're submitting data to the bureaus on their behalf. And we flag and file a bunch of, of errors that we find that don't pass our validation checks. And then we um, we send them back to our clients for force remediation before they actually get sent to the bureaus. So those errors never actually make them to the bureaus. We feel that it's a, you know the right approach to make sure that the data is obviously as accurate as possible. For the bureaus, their data is their lifeblood. That's that's what they you know, that's what they do. And they want it to be as accurate as possible so that the bureaus support this, you know, Vantage Score and others, obviously, I think, you know, support it as well, given the fact that you want to, you want to be scoring people appropriately. Uh, Lenders appreciate it because they're actually able to actually price people correctly for for credit risk when they're, when the data is error-free. And then obviously the consumer, you know, who doesn't want to be inappropriately flagged for something that wasn't their fault. So yes, there are you know about 12 million consumers in the United States that have material errors in their credit reports. And I think that there's ways to continue to get those numbers down so that there's there's less of an impact and that the broader credit data ecosystem, everyone you know benefits by that happening. You know, there's you mentioned the broader ecosystem. And the other the other thing I just wanted to touch on and for for Ricard is, you know, it's a seamless web, right? This all this everything touches everything else to some extent. And so credit scores play a, a role in the broader financial markets and would be really interested to get the other other side of it, Ricard, which is kind of what role does Vantage Score play in the bigger picture of financial markets? When these credit card companies or lenders, they will often want to sell off these loans to the markets so that they can go and you know use their money to invest and putting the business forward. Right. And so when they're looking to securitize then their different products, then the, the markets need to be able to understand what is the relative risk associated with this product, right? So if you look at government bonds or if you look at you know company bonds, there are rating agencies out there, right, who will rate the quality of these different bonds that these different companies or you know countries have, right? Triple, you know, you, you probably heard of junk ratings and things of that nature, right? And so when you deal with the types of products like ABS and you know asset-backed securities or and also residential mortgage-backed securities. There's a very big market out there for that in the investment community. You know, as I said, all these portfolios are split into securities that have relatively similar risk. And there they will use a score like Vantage Score is, is used a lot. You know, we've been used across some of the largest in the automotive and credit card space now. And also going forward, we'll be used, you know, for the mortgage space as well, given the FHFA announcement. So long story short, it's another way for those who are trying to sell on these asset-backed securities and mortgage-backed securities to be able to provide some transparency to the financial markets about the relative risk of these different portfolios of, of these grouped loans. It makes total sense. I mean, as I listen to all sides of this, I think, you know, it's tempting to think nowadays this financial system is pretty sophisticated. There's not that much juice left for the squeeze in terms of just improving the fundamentals. And that's just not true, right? Like you can improve the quality of information and the amount of information that goes into doing the scoring in a way that's going to help people have access to credit and all that kind of thing. But then, you know, that's the cement foundation that gets sort of poured in underneath securitized products that, you know, as we all learned, whatever it was, 15 years ago now, can be a problem. Ahem. 
if that information isn't accurate, if that isn't perfect. And so that has, you know, potentially global implications. So, you know, it, it matters at all levels and there's loads of opportunity to say that we don't, I mean, maybe we'll get to a day when it seems anachronistic that right now we just say, yeah, you know, you get tens of millions of consumers where we just don't really know, you know, what their deal is. Cause that's really what we're saying. It's not saying we, we've got it. We've got good information on them and we think they're not credit worthy. We're just saying, we're just sort of shrugging. Um, at some level. And then we're also saying with respect to a large number of consumers that for reasons understandable or otherwise, that the information in there we have reason to believe ain't quite right. So there's plenty of room to, to fix all this stuff. And, uh, and, you know, and we have both of you obviously on because we think from one angle, Vantage Score is fixing some stuff and from another, Bloom is fixing some other stuff and it kind of comes together in the middle. So any last thoughts from either of you as we wrap this up? And this has been a super interesting conversation. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners have too as well. And you know, Christian, maybe start with you. Any last uh, things to toss in there? The only thing that I would kind of recap in is that there's just such a big population in the U.S. that doesn't really have access to mainstream credit products. And I think it's just very important that this kind of transition is happening right now where there's just more focus on them. And and I I applaud Vantage Score every time I've talked with them and read about what they're doing. We we share the same mindset, right, of expanding access to affordable credit. and, And you do that by improving credit worthiness and actually making more people scorable so they can get access to mainstream products. So I've enjoyed the conversation and enjoyed spending time with uh, Ricard and you on this. So thank you for having me. Oh, terrific. Christian, Ricard, any last words? I would just say that I think that lenders, you know, need to understand that there is such good opportunity for them to increase the addressable market that they can provide their products to without increasing their risk by using scores or using services like Bloom and others, right? Being able to get a better view of a consumer, you you can find so many more people, tens of millions, if not more, right? That should actually be eligible for your products that you're trying to sell and that they should be doing all the best they can to look at what different options they can take to be able to take advantage of that. Absolutely. I can't resist the final plug, which is that, you know, from a social perspective, on average, what that last thing you've mentioned should do is decrease the average cost of, of credit for people, right? And you get more players in, it's more competitive, they're more established, et cetera, et cetera. So the last thing I will close with is it's not like people aren't trying to access credit now. It's that they're not necessarily trying to access the most reputable and conventional types of credit. And so they can end up paying a lot more, et cetera. We know the story. And so um, this is a positive thing if it's all done right. And yeah, commend both your organizations for uh, doing it right. So, well, look, it's been great to have you on Commerce Code. And, uh, you know, we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. Christian and Ricard and I were just talking about people who have thin files or no credit files. They're off the radar screen of the credit scoring system. One of the things we talked about was that the fact that you don't have much of a credit history doesn't mean you aren't good with money. It just means you aren't on the radar screen of the credit bureaus. So I want to tell you the story of someone who we're pretty sure never had a credit score. She had a moment of fame in the late 1990s, and her name was Osceola McCarty. Osceola was born in 1908 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. She was African-American, and she left school in sixth grade to care for a sick aunt. For the rest of her life, 
Osceola cared for relatives, and she earned her living by washing clothes by hand. She was paid in coins and occasionally dollar bills. When she was a young child, having already started to work, she walked to the bank and deposited her first dollar. Now, Osceola's work was revered by local customers who wouldn't have their clothes done by anyone else. After she retired, one customer refused to wear the last two shirts she had done for him. He said he kept them to admire the perfection of the work. By the age of 86, Osceola had $280,000 in the bank. Those were $1994, so that's half a million today. Needless to say, Osceola was a dedicated saver. She said the secret was to be happy with what you had. So, not wanting much, Osceola gave it away. She set aside 10% for her church, 10% for each of her three relatives, and the remaining 60% she gave immediately, while she was still alive, to create a scholarship fund at the University of Southern Mississippi, which, needless to say, she did not attend, having finished school in sixth grade. And she did it so that young people would have better opportunities than she had. In a rare instance of justice being exuberantly done to the right person, Osceola's generosity gained immediate national attention. Other donors came in and tripled the fund immediately. And scholarships are given in her name to this day and will be given in her name for a long time to come. And while it came very late in life, Osceola was flown to the White House to receive the Citizen's Medal. She was honored by the United Nations, granted honorary degrees from Harvard and several other schools. And when she died in 1999, she lay in state in the rotunda of the University of Southern Mississippi, where thousands came to pay their respects to a woman with a sixth grade education, whose hard work and thrift made university educations possible for many others. For the kinds of reasons we discussed today, Osceola McCarty would not have been on the radar screen of the conventional credit scoring industry. She had a bank account. It doesn't appear that she had credit cards or anything else. If you want to learn more about Osceola McCarty, just Google her name. It's a heck of a story. And it's a reminder that we've still got plenty of headroom for improvement and how the economy works to include everyone. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.